You're listening to WP Radio, an OIAA podcast, and I'm your host, Terry Doherty. Each episode, I have in-depth interviews with industry experts and get to know them better. On today's episode, we have Michael Forte and JC Caps of Rumberger LLP out of Florida. They were recorded live at the Shed Brewery for a Hamilton OIAA event back in May. Sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome, guys, to uh, WP Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Tonight we have uh, Michael Forte and JC Caps on. JC, actually, I'm going to start with you because you've got a Canadian connection here. You're actually a Canadian. Yeah, born and raised in Montreal, uh, 1967 and 92, and then I moved to Miami. And uh, JC, I'm just going to get a little bit of background. You went to Queen's University? I went to Queens for a couple of years, and I went to McGill for a few years, graduated from McGill University before I moved to the States. And did you get your law degree here or in? No. Got my law degree in, uh, in Florida, in, oh. at uh, Florida Law School. Okay. And uh, I'll get you to flip the mic back over to Michael. And Michael, you're a, a Long Island boy. Um, I, yes, I am. I was uh, born in New York, lived in Long Island, and came down to uh, Florida when I was probably 10 or 11. Been there ever since. Every kid's dream, right? Live in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you have a couple of offices, I understand? We do. We have, uh, we have five, actually. We have wow. four throughout Florida. And then one in the adjoining state, uh, Alabama. Um, what do you guys do? You just do insurance defense work? Yeah, so we, uh, we've been around this year. Actually, is our 40th year anniversary. Um, we were initially a product liability firm. Um, after that, we've, we've diversified, and we, do, uh, we still do product liability. We uh, also do commercial litigation. We do casualty defense. Um, and uh, that's pretty much what we evolved in, into today. So... Um, you- your field or your personal practice, what do you practice, uh, Michael? Personally, I do. Right now, it's all some type of personal injury. It is products liability, it's casualty defense, car accident defense, um, and then some premises cases as well. And what about yourself, JC? Uh, in the last few years, I moved into cyber and technology work, so a lot of consulting work, litigation, data breach cases, in addition to having a casualty practice and a general litigation practice. So uh, a, a good bit of uh, a variety in the work and in our office has, uh, one of the things I wanted to add to what Mike said is really the common denominator that we do of our firm is we're all trial lawyers, we're all across the firm. Uh, there's roughly 100 of us all able to walk into court and try a case. That's kind of the common denominator, the tie that binds us. And it's a wide variety of practices. So you guys so anything that go can to be trial. litigated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when the clients want to give it a shot, want to roll the dice on trial, we think that's part of the best strategy for the client. The client agrees. Absolutely, it's what we do. And um, the firm, I mean, uh, I know you have the five offices. Um, do you guys do a lot of out-of-state work? So people vacationing, and the reason I'm asking is, you know, most Canadians, you know, they like to go south for the winter, or they go on vacation. They typically go west coast or east coast, so you're going to California or Florida, and I find a lot of people go to Florida because you can drive it, right? Absolutely. Um, So do you get a lot of Ontario-type, Quebec, that kind of case? Yeah, I'll answer quickly, and I'll pass the mic to to talk about his experience briefly as well. But I can tell you, when I joined the firm um, in 1998, uh, one of my first jobs was one of my partners poked her head in the office and said, hey, you, you speak Canadian. Um, had a case in Kitchener uh, involving a a vacationing uh, Canadian who was involved in a pretty bad accident. And um, I you know, flew, to, flew in to Toronto, defended the depositions in Kitchener, worked the case. And since then, had, we've had a, 
really kind of a luck of representing a lot of Canadian uh, entities and a lot of Canadian individual clients. And I think Mike's got, done a good bit of that. Uh, yeah, we have. Um, <clears throat> Canadian citizens like, as JC said, to vacation in Florida, and a lot of them do like uh, to go in JC's neck of the woods, uh, the south uh, east part of the state by Miami, Broward, areas like that. Um, and a lot of them also have uh, vacation homes here, so it's a popular area. And when they do get in an accident down in our state, that, that's where we come in and, and defend them in court. Yeah, because I know a lot of people from Quebec spend a lot of time in Hollywood, Florida. Right, there seems to be a lot of a lot of people concentrated in that area. Right. It's Hollywood, Hallandale, Pompano Beach. Those that's, are that's tremendously the popular for Quebec. And if you go down to those stretches and you get on the beach, you'll see the Quebec flag all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were there once. That's why I remember it's, I was down there vacationing and we happened to go to the beach in Hollywood and I couldn't believe the amount of uh, Fleur de Leaf we saw. Absolutely. It was everywhere and people were speaking French. I was like, are we actually in Quebec now, or are we in Florida? Because it, it felt a lot about like Quebec. Yeah, shameless plug is the Hollywood Beach is the only place you can get good poutine in South Florida. Oh, excellent. So there you go. <laughs> good to know. Um, so let's talk about uh, the court system there. And I know you had talked about it earlier tonight when you were uh, giving your, your talk to the adjusters at the Hamilton chapter of the OIAA. But um, I've talked a little bit before about it on a previous podcast. Um, but I understand there's... You've got the federal court system and the state court system, and they're 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 kind of they run parallel to each other, but they act differently and they respond differently. Correct? Uh, that's correct. They're they're actually they're two separate and distinct court systems, um, and a lot of Americans actually don't even realize there are two parallel systems. Um, but state court is generally for one type of suit, federal court is for another type of suit, and what we talked about earlier today was. Um, in certain situations, you can take the case out of state court, the defendant can, and move it into federal, which is, you know, the federal is the, the better uh, form for defendants. It's more defendant-friendly. Before we talk about the two types, why would you tell me, or why would you say federal is a better, a better avenue for the defendant? Like, what makes it a better avenue? There are a lot of reasons. Um, <clears throat> Well, one of the main reasons is in federal court, you can get uh, an early disposition of the case ahead of trial much more easily than in state court. Um, federal judges are, on the whole, stricter because they have stricter rules. That favors defendants. Um, if a plaintiff has a bad case, it's more likely to get kicked out in federal court because they, are, they have a stricter standard. Um, federal jury pools generally are excellent. They're picked from voter registration rolls as opposed to just uh, driver license databases. Um, federal judges will hold a plaintiff to the expert requirements. So they have to, the plaintiff has to have good experts, valid experts, and they have to give support for their opinions, otherwise they'll get kicked out. And you have a standard much like we do here for experts, right? You, you guys call it Daubert? We do, it's the Daubert standard. It's based on a case called Daubert versus Merrill Dow which is the first case in which the standard was, was set out. And, and what is the standard? Um, is there um, requirements for the expert to um, give evidence in a certain way, or what sets up that? that? Yeah, so, so the, the standard, based, to, to, in essence, what the standard says is for an expert to testify in court, the expert's opinions have to be based on valid science. 
And um, if it is a scientific principle that hasn't been proven, hasn't been tested, um, hasn't been written about, if it's completely um, just being made up by an expert, that is not going to come in because it's not going to assist the jury. It's going to mislead the jury. And who decides if it's uh, hokum or, you know, something that's valid? Who makes that decision? Does the judge make that? Or is there a panel? Or how does that come into play? How do they determine whether an expert's good enough to give expert testimony or as opposed to opinion and info? The, uh, the, uh, the law that, that Mike's talking about, the Daubert case, says that the judge is the gatekeeper to make sure that something that isn't new and novel but that is reliable and accepted in a particular area is admitted. And if it's new and novel, it's not going to be admitted. If it's untested, it's not going to be admitted. So a lot of what you would see going into the new and novel category could be categorized, I think, as junk science. Um, but you can test a whole variety of expert opinions through the Daubert process. Um, it's not something that you should you know, just use all the time. We do see um, situations where uh, parties will take Daubert challenges for virtually everything, which is a risky proposition because you could lose credibility with the court if you take positions that aren't really sure-footed. Um, you're just taking it to roll the dice. But on the other hand, if you do have a good argument, you can keep out an expert who otherwise could be very damaging using unreliable methodology to offer an opinion. Okay. Um, and, and let's talk a little bit more about the federal and the state then. So uh, what types of cases are you going to typically see in federal and what are you going to see in state? Are you going to see more the small MVA in state and bigger MVAs in federal or, or what are you going to see? Or is, is, is there really no rhyme or reason to it? It's just decided who brought it and what stream. Well, well uh, typically, um, you know, federal courts are, they say that there are courts of limited jurisdiction. And what that means is that you can't just file any case in federal court. It has to meet a couple of requirements. Number one is you have to either be sued under a federal law. Number two is the amount of controversy has to be more than 75,000. And there has to be what they call diversity of citizenship. Basically what that means when we're talking about Canadian insurance companies is that the defendant has to be a citizen of a different country. Um, so when you're talking about Canadian insureds, they fit that bill uh, easily, obviously. Um, so you just have to see if the amount of controversy is more than the 75,000. And typically your MVAs in Florida are going to be that way? Unfortunately, right? yes. Yes. Um, you, can, you can show the 75,000 by looking at the easiest way is to look at the past medicals. And then you can also add to that the future recommended medicals by the doctor. A lot of times that in and of itself or even one of those two would put you over the 75,000 threshold. And you talked a bit about it in your uh, topic as well, uh, the leaning of uh, medicals to the judgment. Um, now that's different than what's done here. So can we, maybe, can you expand on that a little bit for me? Sure, yeah, the uh, medical costs in the United States are extremely high. And a lot of times what doctors will do is they will issue very high charges and then instead of, even if insurance is available, instead of putting it through insurance, they will just hold those bills. So they will have a lien on their own medical treatment. Um, the liens can be very high, but one good thing about the way the doctor's in doing that is that when you try to settle a case, you know that that, that doctor, first of all, they marked up their charges, and second of all, because they hold the lien, you know that they can mark the lien down a good amount. 
So that's one way you can uh, try to settle a case, especially if you have high medical bills. So can you rebut their medical bills? So you then get your own medical doctor to go in and say, you know, your surgery, although you billed 150000 for it, you know, an average cost or what should have been a recommended cost is more in the amount of 80000 your bill should be. And that's how you bring it down? Or how are you, yeah. are you just, is it just a straight up gunfight and you're negotiating? Or is it done in both ways? It, it, it's both, I think. Um, you're negotiating, but you're exactly right. You can hire your own medical experts because the plaintiff is entitled not to whatever their doctors charge. They're entitled to the reasonable value of those medical services. Okay. And is there a chart of what those services are? There's, I can throw it way in on this one. Well, no, there isn't. Um, usually what you could do is hire a billing uh, expert. We'll hire someone who's familiar with billing practices, and they will have the information or obtain the information to say, well, this is what's reasonable and customary in a particular area. And that would usually be a range. I think, you know, a lot of times it'll come in in a range number, um, and that will be what you use to rebut. But you, my experience has been that the judges, uh, if you try to get your doctor to offer an opinion about what the other doctor should have charged, in other words, a defense doctor commenting on what the plaintiff's doctor should have charged, the judge will recoil and not let you offer that type of evidence in because that is not appropriate. It's really commentary on it, at least from the judges I've been with, though I know there's a variety of experiences and, and people have told me they've gotten that into that position where at least their expert can say, I would have charged, the medical doctor could say, if you had a, a basic surgery, I would have charged X for that surgery. Um, and then the implication has to sit out there without comment. Well, do you think what, what Dr. Smith, the plaintiff surgeon charged was unreasonable? They won't let you go that extra step ever. Um, and it's, it, to Mike's point, you know, having grown up here and, and grown up with socialized healthcare is very, very different in the US. It is um, an element of business in a lot of ways. Uh, the doctors know that through the medical legal process, their, their likely recovery exceeds by a good deal what they're contractually going to get either through Medicare, if that's available, socialized medicine, or through a health insurer. The health insurers are never going to pay what the doctors are attempting to recover, even if you factor in a reduction on the bills. And so it's part of the doctor's attempt to do far better um, through medical legal process than they would do through any other process available for compensation for repayment in an insured situation with a so patient. So if they know there's an MVA involved or a slip and fall or, or somewhere where they think there's some liability or negligence, they're going to hold off on that bill and put it in the lien process. That's, that's very common, even if they think, e even if, they, if there's a case of no liability against the defendant, a lot of times they'll put it in the lien process anyway, um, knowing that you know, they'll get something for sure is what they're thinking. Now, would they lean the plaintiff at that point? Yeah, it's, it's technically a lien uh, against the plaintiff, but the way that it works out is when a settlement is done, um, those liens are included in the settlement. So basically, if you settle a case, the plaintiff agrees to satisfy any liens, which really in practical terms means the plaintiff goes to the doctor, gets a discount on the lien, and the lien's extinguished. So he'll get his little cut in, in some, you know, not a kickback, but he'll, he'll get a reduction, so the plaintiff will get to keep a little bit more than what was paid out. Is that how it that, works? That's exactly how it works, yeah. So instead of getting 100 cents on the dollar, the doctor gets 95, and the plaintiff gets to keep maybe 5 cents on that dollar. Right, and usually when, it, when they do negotiate, it's, it's a lot more than that even. So um, they, they can cut the bills down a lot, those liens. 
Yeah, but but that's an agreement they have on uh, like a sidebar agreement they they have they knowing will. litigations out there. Yeah, they, well, yeah, exactly. It's probably unwritten because that type of evidence could be very damaging to a physician if we were to get it and we were to offer it into evidence as to the relationship and the deals that exist that we we fully believe they do exist. But a lot of the, what that counts on is either a settlement, and the majority of the cases will fall into these two buckets, either a settlement or a trial. They're counting on that, uh, and obviously a favorable verdict at trial. But in the situation where a plaintiff uh, either goes to trial and there's a defense verdict, or a case is dismissed for one reason or another, um, in those situations, um, I think it does a real disservice, my opinion, um, because the plaintiff patient is left with these enormous medical bills and there's no one that's going to pay those and then the physician or physicians have to decide are we going to write those off and turn them into zero or are we going to seek to collect against the patient in the latter category the plaintiff one-time plaintiff patient um, really is done a disservice when they have some type of insurance available and it's not used can they actually then go back or is there a time limit that they're required to issue that to an insurance company? Do they have the right then, if it gets dismissed or whatever, do they have a right to then turn around and go after the insurance company to make the recovery? No, I think, I think by that point it would be too late to submit them to insurance, so they've really missed the boat on that. Wow, okay. So they're taking, uh, sometimes they're taking a big leap here, the doctors. It's a risk for both sides. The yep. The patient as well, yeah. Uh, okay, well that's interesting because you know, I know up here you have literally you get hurt, you go see the doctor, you have your surgery, you go about your day. You don't think about the bill or the implication because it's covered by OHIP, right? Um, now, is surgery different or like, so the, the, reason, the kind of question I'm trying to get out here is, is a broken arm surgery the same in Miami as it is in Tampa? like the cost of it. So, you know, getting a plate in your humerus in Miami, is that the same as it is in Tampa as it is in Alabama? Or is it different costing? Is there kind of a meat chart in that, you know, where we have a, a you know, it's going to be 15000 to get a plate in in Alabama. Is it going to be fifteen in Miami or is it going to be more expensive because of where you are? Yeah, it actually depends on where you go for the surgery. So each surgery center or hospital, they can set their own rate so there is not a set rate that they all have to, to charge. Oh, so there's not, that isn't even set either. Right. Oh, wow. So that's going to vary. Okay. And um, is it typical that you're going to see um, a state hospital? Now, let's talk about your medical system. How is that set up? You have, your, you have state or hospitals, right, or county, county hospitals, and right. then you have private hospitals, then you have private clinics, and then private surgery places, right? That's right. So there's a whole bunch of different stuff. Right, many options. And uh, do they all try and recover, or is it typically just the private? Um, I, I think they, they all they all do try to recover. Um, now, if there is if it's a county hospital and there is insurance, there is insurance available. The county hospital might be more likely to process it through through insurance, unless the plaintiff attorney says not to. Um, but they will all try to get something on their on their on their liens. Sure. So is that a typical thing? They Instead of just, uh, so again, this is that whole thing. Um, the county hospital, they're more likely not to put a lien in and they'll, they'll follow the insurance route and you'll never hear from them? If there is insurance and if the plaintiff allows them, uh, yes, they, they would like to use insurance, I would think. Why would a plaintiff lawyer not want you to? 
That is an excellent question, JC. You want to? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Thanks. And the um, on the point of the county hospital, uh, uh, it's very critical. So you know, Canadians who who travel down our way and are involved in an incident um, along the lines of what we're talking about, if they go to a county hospital, typically what I've seen is unless they're in an urgent situation, in other words, they need emergency surgery, the hospital does not perform surgical services. So it won't be an option. They will take palliative care of the plaintiff, you know, pain relievers, anti-inflammatories, maybe splint them, uh, you know, give them crutches. But beyond that, they won't do anything. They'll discharge with instructions to follow up with a specialist. And a lot of the times, uh, in between the discharge and any medical care, uh, a lawyer will get involved. And then the nature of where you go next can often be guided by the relationship with the lawyer. Let's talk about your, your going back, to, flipping back to your courts here, and you've got your state and your federal, and then you have U.S. Supreme Court. Where does it come in? Where does that come in in court of appeal? Is there a court of appeal in state as well, or does that, is, you know, tell me about that. Tell us about the... Yeah. So, so it depends on the state. You know, each of the 50 states, they can, they're entitled to set up their own system. Um, generally, the way a state court system would work is trial, then intermediate appellate, and then state Supreme Court. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court, um, again, because federal courts deal with only certain types of cases. So if the U.S. Supreme Court issues a ruling, that ruling is actually binding not only in federal court, but throughout the, all the states. Okay. Um, and th then let's talk about um, if you are an out-of-town or an out-of-state person, like a Canadian, and the person issues in state court, we know that because we're out of state, it's gonna, the damages are gonna be over 75. We can get it kicked to federal. Now, let's talk about um, the, the person that's in federal court, the, the Canadian that's in federal court. Do they ever run the risk of being kicked back into state court? Is there any reason why they could? And, and what can they do to maybe possibly prevent that? Is there, is there anything there? Yeah, the, the plaintiff is entitled to try to get it kicked back from federal to state. And the way that the plaintiff could do that is to file a motion saying the defendant failed to meet the requirements for federal. So they could allege that either the defendant is actually a Florida resident, which wouldn't apply here. More likely what they would allege is that the amount of controversy is less than 75,000. So that would be one way. Um, another way is you have 30 days to remove a case from state to federal. If the plaintiff thinks that you missed your 30-day deadline, they could use that as a basis to try to get it kicked out as well. Well, here's the question then. Is he limiting his damages to 75 then, if he's saying that? So is he limiting all heads of damages within the 75 cap? That's, we love to see if we remove a case and the plaintiff says, hey, my damages are under 75,000. We love to see that. It'll get us kicked back to state, but we can argue that what the plaintiff just said in federal is a limitation on the damages in state court. So it's a trade-off. And what, will that stand up? Will that, the fact that, you know, he had to allege that, will the, is that written somewhere? Or is he just going in and saying that before, uh, you know, a magistrate? Like, or is that something he has to write down? It then becomes part of his brief. Yeah, the good thing about that is it does, in that situation we just described, it has to be written down. So he would have to file it in writing with the federal court. Now, whether that would hold up in state court, there are no state court opinions litigating that issue. But what we would argue is that that's an admission. And so that's an admission, therefore, that in state court, that plaintiff is not getting 75000 or getting less than that. 
so that's probably why you haven't seen many of that. They're not using that. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, it's very rare, I think, that they would try to get it kicked out based on that approach. Uh, they would probably use a different approach. Yeah. Um, okay. And um, let's talk about damages and medical costs. We know they're big. You've said they're big because of the, uh, the liens they put on. Um, who, who all can you look at or possibly as an adjuster when you're, when you're thinking about your case and you're thinking about, you know, you've got to look at getting counsel involved and experts involved. Is that something you would help us do as adjusters here in Canada? You would help us find those experts in your area that are going to be of benefit to us or are we going to have to do that on our own or is there, or is there a service that we, you would recommend? Like, what would we do when we're thinking about our insureds that have now been involved in a motor vehicle accident, they've just been sued, is this something that you can kind of guide us through? Absolutely, and that's, um, you know, over the, the 40 years that we've been um, a firm, we've, we have a relationships with a lot of good quality experts, and these are people that um, are trusted and that are excellent in their fields. And so experts are something that we can easily help you with, and we have experts. It's best to have local experts, always best, um, local to where, where the case is, and we can definitely help, help you out with that. Why do you say local to the, where the case is? Well, local is better. Number one, it's easier. Um, number two is that um, if you're trying a case in the community, it's always nice to see that it's somebody who's you know nearby instead of somebody in a different country or something. You have to fly in, you know, especially for the for the trial. Does that take away from the hired gun type of perspective as well? Exactly right. It certainly does. Okay, so it's not like you're bringing in some some expert from Alabama that's going to do a Miami case if there's one available in that area. Right, and, and that's the key, is sometimes there is not one available. So we do have to sometimes bring in experts from other states or other regions. Um, but when there are plentiful experts in our area, we, we use a local person. Okay, let's uh, talk about heads of damages. Um, what are you guys seeing as your heads of damages typically in these type of MVA um, cases, these tort cases? Well, there are, um, there are four basic heads of damages. The medical costs we talked about. Um, pain and suffering is the big one, though. Um, pain and suffering, there is no formula, no standard for that. The only standard is that in a car accident case, a plaintiff has to show a permanent injury before being entitled to any pain and suffering damages. Um, and once a plaintiff shows a permanent injury, the jury is free to award a reasonable amount of pain and suffering. So that permanent, that's not permanent now, that's permanent now and into the future. Right, that's exactly So right. if you had just a aggravated um, slip disc and it's repaired or it's been fixed, that's no longer a permanent issue, uh, injury. Or is that correct, what you're I, saying? I agree. Now, the way the plaintiff would spin that is, well, um, if surgery has to be done, the plaintiff will say, well, that surgical repair is permanent. So therefore, that satisfies the permanency requirement. Um, it, it's a weak argument, I think, and we've been able to beat it in certain cases, um, but that's, that's the approach they would take. What about broken bones or concussions and stuff that, that heal? That's, you have a better chance, I think. Um, uh, you know, a broken bone, if it heals and you're, it's, it's as good as it was before, you're good. Um, so, and concussions, depending on how bad it is. I mean, you, you can certainly heal from, heal from that. Others, it'll be more difficult. Okay. Um, and are you seeing a lot of the same, and we see it here, so I'm get, just going to see if it's the same in your jurisdiction. We see a lot of the same doctors, um, medical experts, all with the same firm, so they seem to be picking from the same pool of experts? 
Yeah, we, we see that. JC, you see that a lot, a lot as well. Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think there's you know probably two components to that. One is to be fair. If you work with a doctor and you find them to be excellent, um, that they're you know very good about patient care, they're very responsive, um, and they're good witnesses, um, you'd want to go with them. I mean, that, that, to me, that's a fair concept for either side to apply. Um, but we also do know um, that there are a lot of doctors that have... Um, you know, relationships um, with with firms and maybe they're not, um, you know, relationships that are purely driven by those motives. Maybe they are excellent doctors, maybe they do provide patient care, but there's more to those motives. There's relationships there, there's arrangements there, um, and we try to dig into those. And it is a complex area to get into. Um, and you have to be, you know, cautious about how you're acting, what you're saying, and work very hard to develop the evidence. And, and I think at the end of the day, you're always engaging in a cost-benefit analysis. If you have a case that is not a very high damage case, we're talking a lot about high damage cases, but a lot of times we don't have high damage cases, the um, effort that ends up being spent for Canadian insurers is probably not going to be worth the, uh, the attempt and the effort. It's gonna cost a lot to get to that evidence if you can get to it. However, if you have a big case, um, we're in the middle of one right now where we're going after a whole bunch of doctors um, and we're pursuing a whole bunch of doctors and we're pursuing their representatives and their business representatives and we're talking about billing and pricing and expense and how this all comes about and there's some good collateral issues in that case that are helping us along. Um, you go for it. You can go for it and you can go after the damages case that way, way by suggesting this is not an honest process that's being employed here. But it's a long it's a long road to go down and it costs money so you have to be committed to the case it has to make financial sense for the case and one of the things we do uh, right out of the blocks as quickly as we can is we evaluate what you have we're, we're trying to help uh, all our clients engage in good decision making out of the blocks and it, it, the longer a case goes on oftentimes the more it costs so if you're going to fight the fight then it should be worthwhile you should be committed to spending the money because that makes sense for this particular case, a lot of times the path, the quickest result is the one you want to take if we can do it decisively and get a great result for the client. And we will always pursue those paths at the outset and consult with the client if they want to go further, and they can. But we're trying very quickly to club cases and kill them, find the best advantage we can for our client to end them. This episode is brought to you by FSR, Full Service Restoration. FSR is a veteran-operated disaster restoration company specializing in fire, water, and wind damage. During the owner's time in the Canadian Armed Forces, the core values he learned play an instrumental role in the day-to-day operations of the company. Dedication to customer service is a goal that FSR strives for every day. Full-service restoration is capable of handling all your restoration needs. The name says it all. For more information, please check out their website at www.fsreo.ca or call now at 613-204-1457. Now let's get back to the show. Now, um, we in here we have mediation, arbitration, discovery, uh, settlement conferences. Is that the same setup you have in Florida as well? It's the same. Uh, mediation is extremely popular. Arbitration is not mandatory in most cases, but uh, mediation is successful and a lot of times required. Now, um, we have some cases here in under in in Ontario under a hundred thousand. There's no discovery, so it's uh, you're you're going in blind almost, right? You you have uh, possible mediation, but it's it's not always there. But no discovery under hundred k. Um, do you have that there, or is that always discovery 
That, that's interesting. We, we don't have a rule like that in Florida. Um, it could be the smallest case imaginable, and it could still have discovery. Okay. So you, can agree, you can stipulate to whatever you want. Our rules of procedure, so long as it's not illegal, you can stipulate to whatever you want to do, whatever process you want to employ. Um, you know, Mike was, I, I hear Mike reacting the same way I am, which is the honor system doesn't really work very well, we found. Uh, if we get records, we're going to get records that are selectively or cherry-picked um, that only tell us some segment of the entire story. We're certainly not, not going to get history. A lot of times when we're stuck in a case and we're trying to work through a, a pre-suit process, it's very hard because what really makes the difference for defense lawyers is having subpoena power to be able to go after the records, get them from the direct providers, and start, start to sift through those records. And oftentimes we find, even when we do that, uh, we have to go back because we don't get all of the records, and a lot of times there are more records than what was produced to us, and that's with the subpoena. So in, in Ontario, we have OHIP, so all of your time you go to a doctor, there's a record, an, an, an actual record of every time you went, whether it's for a runny nose or an actual illness, and that record exists in perpetuity. Um, you don't have that in Florida, I'm going to assume, because you can go to whatever medical provider you want, so then you, it's more of a fishing expedition, trying to find out where they went and when? That, that's the exact problem. And um, like JC was saying, the plaintiff will disclose, every plaintiff, none of them will disclose all of the providers they've ever been to, either because they don't remember or because they don't want to. And so we will, it's exactly right, we have to, um, it's kind of like a tree. We find some providers, subpoena those records, it leads to more, and we just follow the path as long as it goes. Wow, okay, well that's, that's totally different. So there's no centralized medical database for you guys at all? Uh, that's right, there, there is not. Wow, okay. Um, and you, I, I gotta assume you typically use discovery then as a lot of your fact finding? We, we do. Um, that's early, done early on in the case. We have two basic forms of discovery. One is written, so we ask the plaintiff questions and also to produce documents. And then the second main type is, uh, is test, sworn testimony. So we'll sit down with the plaintiff, ask them questions on her oath, and we can depose whoever we want in the case that we think is relevant to, to what the plaintiff is claiming. And how many times do you get discovery? Once? Or can you do a written and an oral? You, you can do both, yep. Of the same person? Um, of the same person, you can, yes. So you can do a written upfront, hey, give me this, this, and this, and then review it, and then go in and ask further questions of them? Exactly, and, and typically the person we would do that to, to use both on is the plaintiff. So we would do written discovery to the plaintiff first, and then depose the plaintiff. For if it's a non-party, like a doctor or insurance company, for those types of, of entities, typically we would just do written, just ask for their records, and that's what we would do to them. Because... Uh, I gotta assume a NARM party that has, they, they don't care either way, they're gonna give you all the records that they have available to them, right? Right, they're supposed to, they're supposed to just look at, pull up that, page, that plaintiff's name and just give you everything they have. And uh, you guys use mediation a lot, yes? Mediation is excellent, yeah. Yeah, and wh where are you using mediation? Ordered, most times it's ordered by the court. It's so it's court-ordered mediation? Cases, uh, it noticed for trial, and a trial order with deadlines is issued, there's a simultaneously in order to mediate the case. It's in our rules of procedure. So mandatory mediation. Right. And does that fall before discovery or after? Usually it is after, although if you think you have enough um, information provided to you pre-suit voluntarily by the plaintiff, in some situations as a 
cost-saving measure if it makes sense, you can do an early mediation. Okay. But in most cases, it's after you get discovery and depose the plaintiff. Okay. And uh, what about summary judgment motion? I, I, from what I heard tonight, I think it's a little different than ours here. Yeah, it's um, so summary judgment in the U.S. is where you have essentially no important disputed issue. So if it's a car accident case, for example, if all of the witnesses, including the plaintiff, basically say it was, the accident was completely the plaintiff's fault. In a situation like that, there is no disputed issue on liability. You could get the case kicked out in advance of a trial uh, because there is nothing to litigate, essentially. Can you go to summary judgment on specific parts of the trial? And then hear the other parts? Is, do you use it for that as well, to bifurcate the trial? Absolutely, we do when we can. If it's a, if it's a multi-count complaint, uh, maybe there's four counts, one of them you can get summary judgment on, you can knock that one out, and that narrows the issues for trial later on. Okay. Um, and uh, let's talk about Medicare, because Medicare is a little different than what we have as far as a socialized medicine here in Ontario. Tell me a little bit about Medicare and kind of uh, some of the things we should be aware of when we're dealing with claims involving Medicare. Uh, I, I think one of the things that we're most sensitive to is that there's an obligation to make sure that Medicare is reimbursed directly by a, a defendant in a lawsuit. Um, so if a case is settled, um, it's less of a concern if a case is tried, though Medicare would still have to be paid back at the end of the day if a case is tried. Um, but generally where you're really watching it is, Medicare tends to run uh, quite a bit lower than the, the standard medical bill. So you could have a medical bill, a uh, total amount of medical bills of several hundred thousand dollars, but when Medicare pays that, Medicare might pay a tenth of that, which is very beneficial to a defendant, obviously. Um, the law in the state of Florida does not, in a Medicare situation only, um, allow a plaintiff to actually tell a jury about the 200,000 when it's Medicare and only Medicare, it's just the $20,000 number that the jury sees. So that's a huge difference for us and very important. Um, and the other big distinction is, uh, is, as I mentioned, it's the making sure that Medicare is taken care of. The defendant needs to take on that responsibility to make sure that the trust fund is reimbursed. Um, so it can be very beneficial. Certainly we, we look for it. Um, it. It's a, it can be a bit of a slower process at times because, um, it takes a while for the, the claims to work their way through the Medicare system, so it can slow down a case a little bit. But at the end of the day, if you can find common ground, a lot of times Medicare will fuel that. Another quick point I wanted to mention is in the US, uh, we always have to be sensitive to HIPAA. So uh, you had mentioned OHIP, and I, I don't know what access, if any, exists for a party in litigation um, to be able to view OHIP records or be able to get OHIP records in a pre-suit in a non-litigated claim stage, but we can't um, get that at all. We, we're not allowed to go to a medical provider and say, hey, please give us your records for the plaintiff, even though they've made a claim against us. We can't do anything like that. We have to be very sensitive to the privacy rights of the patient, as does the provider, and they cannot produce records to us without a subpoena, and the subpoena has to be what's called HIPAA compliant. And what we're saying through HIPAA is really, we're taking all necessary measures to comply with the federal law to protect patient privacy. Yeah, we wouldn't typically go to the OHIP so. personally. Yeah, would we would go through the plaintiff's lawyer 
even before the suit's issued or even early stages and say, let us see the medical OHIP records right. so we can kind of, and you're looking for, you know, pre-existing injuries, right? You know, do, you know, you may have had a bad hit before, you know, as opposed to, you know, it's, it's hurt now, but has it ever been hurt? Or, you know, you're seven times you went to the doctor before the accident, you were talking about the same hip. Well, you know, is it really a part of the accident or is it just, you know, now it's top of mind because you've had an accident? Yeah, that, that's all relevant information, absolutely. Yeah, so that, that's, that's how we would go about it. I, I mean, would imagine here, if they want to be taken seriously, they're going to give you that record. Otherwise, you're going to pretty much glance them off and say, well, then you'll have to take it to the next step. If you won't give us the records, you have no credibility. For us, it's a bit of a different, it's a different position. We, we, don't, we can ask for it, but you know, we can't really trust what we're getting. We have to be really cautious in believing what's turned over to us when we do get voluntary production of records like that. Yeah, we get, and we ask for seven years at, as a starter. And then if we see something going back seven, I then go back and ask for an additional five. So I typically look for 12 to seven to 12 years back. That, that's, yeah, that, that's reasonable. We usually ask for 10 is in, in our rules, but seven, 10, 12, anything like that, I think is a yeah. good number. And I think that's pretty fair, right? You're gonna, that's yeah. kind of the standard. Um, guys, I've, I've taken enough of your time, I think, tonight, and I appreciate it, and, uh, and, and I know you have other things to do, but uh, how do people get in touch with you guys, and how are they going to reach out to, to Rumberger and you, JC, and, and you, Michael, how are they going to get in touch with you as adjusters, uh, other than we're going to put it on the podcast, but how do we get in touch with you when we have a case and we're worried about it? Can you yeah. give us your contact information? Sure. Probably the easiest way is to go to our website. Um, it is... Uh, www.rumburger.com and just look under there's a tab there for people look under JC Caps K-A-P-S or Mike Forte F-O-R-T-E we're on there all our contact info is on there our emails and everything like that and you guys like to come to Canada and you, you like the Canadian clients? We, you, we, we love Canada. I love cl uh, Canadian clients. JC is from here originally, as he mentioned. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're, we're big fans. And Rumberger's R-U-M-B-E-R-G-E-R. -E -E Correct. That's All right. right. Well, thank you very much, guys. We appreciate you spending your time on WP Radio, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks everyone for listening to uh, WP Radio this uh, season. We look forward to having you back in September and uh, have an enjoyable summer. And we'll see you all in September with a new edition with Mike McLeod, our incoming president with the OIAA. Thanks. Take care. Are you an insurance adjuster actively adjusting claims? If so, we want you. The OIAA is a professional organization currently consisting of 1,800 claims professionals with its main focus on education, networking, and knowledge. We promote and maintain a high standard of ethics among insurance claims professionals. We work together with government departments and officials, governing bodies, members of other organizations, insurance companies, associations and fraternities, as well as the general public in matters connected with the business of insurance and insurance claims. We recognize the value of networking for education, advocacy, advancing professional standards, and offering mutual support. We provide networking, professional development, inside industry news, and support to insurance adjusters across Ontario. By joining our network of active and associate members, you receive a direct introduction to other members, our Without Prejudice magazine delivered to your door, 
discounts for all social and professional development events, knowledge from mixing with seasoned, experienced adjusters and with new up-and-coming professionals, and satisfaction knowing that you are an active participant in shaping claims adjustment and risk management services in Ontario. Most compelling of all is the price. Just for $50 a year plus HST, the value far outweighs the fee. Can you afford not to join us? Please visit our website to become a member and to review our calendar of events at www.oiaa.com.